0: How many of you recognize that? It's a classic hymn of the church. How many of you recognize that? Yeah, that's a, a, a neat song. I know when we first started singing it uh, a few months ago, I said, hey, I know that one. I remember that. It's kind of a blast from the past. I like that when we take some of the classic songs of the church that have been sung down through the centuries and hundreds of years and thousands of years and kind of redo them and kind of prep them up and get them ready for today. So uh, go ahead and pull your outline out. We're starting in part three today of our series, Not a Fan. And in the series, Not a Fan, we're confronting some crucial questions regarding the level of our commitment to Jesus Christ. And we're asking ourselves this question, are we simply his fans or are we becoming his fully committed followers? And uh, I want to take a look at the last couple weeks, and you can just write this in your little margin there in the beginning of your notes there's a little introductory session i want to talk a little bit about some of the things we've learned so far and some of the crucial questions that have arise as we did that on easter sunday we took some time to dtr to define the relationship with jesus and ask ourselves a bunch of different questions about that and we talked about going from the casual to the com- committed continuum do you remember that we started over here and at the end of this continuum was casual and this is i'm a fan of jesus i like jesus I might even buy a Christian fish and throw it on the back of my car. I might even show up at church like regularly, and I might even give regularly. Uh, but I'm kind of over here and I'm saying, Yay, Jesus, from a distance, but I'm really not following him. And over here at the end of this continuum, on the other end, is I'm fully committed to Jesus. You know, I may not always look the part, I may not always act or talk the part, I may not know all the Christian vernacular, but I'm committed to him and I'm following him. And the best place for me on earth is looking at the back of Jesus as I'm following him. And I love the psalm that says this, your rod and your staff, your leadership, are a comfort to me, okay? That's this end of it. And uh, so we talked about where are you on the continuum that day, and we talked about the fact that it's not necessarily most important to know exactly where you are, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 1.6, 9.7, where you are on the continuum, but which way are you headed? Are you headed toward being a fan of Jesus? Are you turned and are you following Jesus? Which way are you headed? So that was the crucial question. Which way are you headed when it comes to following Jesus? All right? And then last Sunday we noted that Jesus extended this open invitation for everyone and anyone to take up their cross and to follow him. And uh, Carmen did a great job here at this campus last week reminding us of how in those days people who were Jewish would have picked a rabbi to follow. They would have followed the teachings of the rabbi, but they also, some of them who got into the SI group. Anybody know what SI is in education these days? The special interest group. That means you're really smart. And if you got in the SI group, you not only got to follow the teachings of the rabbi, you got to physically follow the rabbi wherever he went. And there was a blessing given to this special group who were devoted enough to physically follow this rabbi. They were given this blessing: "May the dust of your rabbi cover you." May the du- and it was a blessing, because those people were considered blessed to be able to be in that proximity to the rabbi. And so, last week we asked you, "Whose dust are you covered in?" In other words, who are you following? Is it your own dust? Is it Jesus' dust? Is it your employer's dust? Is it your education's dust? Is it your own dream for your own life? Whose dust are you covered in? And so that was a crucial question last week as we learned to follow Jesus. And that brings us today to another crucial question. Another crucial question as we look today at how to develop a rich and rewarding relationship with Jesus that's based on both transparency and trust in him. And uh, when we look at that, a rich, rewarding relationship that's built on transparency and trust We usually use the word like this in our culture, intimacy. That's what intimacy is. It's a rich, rewarding relationship that's built on both transparency and trust. That's what intimacy means. And I wanted to give you that definition this morning because most of the guys in the room, as soon as they heard the word intimacy, they went, ooh, creep me out. Intimacy with God and Jesus. You know, it gets a little creepy. You know, we say, let's get intimate with Jesus. And all the guys go, whoa, that's for the ladies in the crowd. Ladies' Bible studies, and but you know what? All of us are wired, both men and women, male and female, to have this intimate relationship with Jesus. Rich, rewarding, transparent, trustful relationship with God. And those are the ingredients of it. And so today the crucial question is this. When it comes to developing your intimate relationship with Jesus, how close will you get? How close will you get? Will you stay at a distance from Jesus, or will you, with increasing numbers of days in your life, grow in proximity to Jesus as you follow him? It has been said that God has no favorites, but that he does have intimates. The scriptures say that God favors no person, no man, no woman, but that God, through scripture, shows us God does have intimates. People who peel into the presence and the person of God, and they get to know him. Intimates are people who not only discover a life-changing journey with Jesus Christ, they develop a lifestyle that nurtures this ever-deepening relationship with someone who they refer to as the Master, Jesus Christ. And it falls off their lips as easily as that. The truth is is that all of us were designed, according to Psalm 139, to be in this living, intimate relationship with God. We're hardwired for it. Please listen and watch to the words of Psalm 139. 39 in the images that come up on the screen right now as we watch them together Psalm 139 Oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me You know when I sit down or stand up You know my every thought when far away You chart the path ahead of me and tell me where to stop and rest Every moment you know where I am You know what I'm going to say even before I say it Lord. You both proceed and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too great for me to know. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the place of the dead, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning. If I dwell by the Father's potion. Even there, your hand will guide me. And your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are both alike to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. And knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, and how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They are innumerable. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up in the morning, you are still with me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. saw those images on the screen and heard those words what are some of the things that stirred in your soul as you heard a young child you know reading the scriptures and the truth of god as you saw that baby the picture of the baby growing in its mother's womb what are some of the things that stirred inside of you god gives images in scripture to stir the depths of our soul so that we're people that won't settle we won't settle for being distant from him, but we need to know him up close and personal. And the truth that we're going to look in today, and this is a couple of the first fill-ins in your outline, is the truth is this. Fans choose knowledge, but followers embrace intimacy. For someone who is a fan of Jesus, they just want to know about Jesus, but followers embrace intimacy. That's our theme for today. But what does embracing intimacy really look like? Because we're all handcrafted, we're all made differently, we're all fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's what that means in Psalm 139, that we're all just a little bit different. God made us all wonderfully unique, one of the translations says. So how does it look, what's it look like to embrace intimacy for me and for you if we're wonderfully complex and just a little bit different from each other? So I want to give you some insight to that this morning from God's word because I don't think God wants to lay before us this desire and build into us the desire for intimacy with him for this transparent, trust-filled relationship without giving us some tracks to run on, some ways to develop it. And so our first point this morning is this. Embracing intimacy with Jesus means recognizing my need to know and to be known. Recognizing my need to know and to be known. In order to develop intimacy with God, we've got to come to grips with the fact that as we examine both Scripture and our own experiences, we begin to see that the fingerprints of God have been all over our lives. If you look back at over your life and you begin to look at the different experiences and you wonder why this happened, why this person came, why this person went, why God replaced this person with these three people. You begin to see the fingerprints of God all over your life if you take the time to be contemplative and listen and journal and be quiet. In the fall, we learned through the EHS materials, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, that only through contemplative spirituality and emotional health knit together can we become spiritually mature. And so it, we need to take time to look back over our lives and to, in light of Scripture and God's Word and see that his fingerprints are all over me and all over you. I want, to, I want you to turn to the person next to you and you say, God's fingerprints are all over you. I just want you to say that real quickly. How many of you have ever studied a catechism? You grew up in a church or a church family where you studied a catechism. Okay, there's probably just about half of us or a third of us here. There was about two-thirds in the first service who had studied a catechism. Catechism is a systematic way of looking at theology, looking at God, man, looking at the earth, looking at end times, looking at the time now. It's a systematic way of doing that, and it's a way of learning what's important. It's learning the non-negotiables of faith is what you learn in a catechism. And one of the catechisms that we have recorded for us, handed down through the years, is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And I'm going to go through all of it this morning, and we're going to learn it, and then you're going to take a quiz at the end and we're going to have confirmation in your first communion. And a catechism is a set of questions and answers that somebody learns so that they can move from being a fan of God to being a follower of God, so they can choose for themselves. Is this my faith or not? That's the intention of a catechism. I don't know if it's always used that way, but that was the intention of writing catechisms in the church, was for young people as they grew to learn what faith was about and then at some point say, that's my faith. I choose it and then take communion and then be confirmed as part of the church. It didn't always happen that way, does it? But in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the very first question is this. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief purpose? What's the purpose of mankind? We would say it that way. And the response is this, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the chief end of man, that's the purpose of mankind, that's the purpose of each one of us, is to know God and glorify God and to enjoy that relationship with him both now and forever. That's our chief end. Most of us, if we were going to answer that question this morning, if I didn't give you the answer, it would be, well, do this for God, or go here for God, or move to Africa for God, or we would all go into doing, not being, right? But the catechism is right. The chief end of man, the reason God created us, is is he wanted to relate to us and have a living, trust-filled, transparent, life-changing relationship of the Heavenly Father with his children on earth. And so the catechism is right. And rightfully so, we should probably commit it to memory, to wake up each morning and say, today is a day where my chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him altogether, to live in a joyful relationship with him, whatever's going on in my life, and to stop first thing in the morning and say, God, I want to glorify you, and today, help me to enjoy you altogether, and the work that you're doing in, my life. in other words, God designed all of us to know and be known by him. It's hardwired. You know, there's an intriguing word that keeps popping up in Psalm 139. In the first six verses, it just comes up again and again and again. Matter of fact, it comes up six different times. Let me read it to you and see if you can pick out the word. Oh Lord, you have examined my heart, and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see when I travel and when I rest at home and you know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. The Hebrew word that's used here again and again and again, we have translated into the English is to know, to know. In Yiddish or in Hebrew, it is yada. You ever hear the phrase, yada, yada, yada? Do you ever use the phrase, yada, yada, yada? Do you ever watch the Seinfeld episode, yada, yada, yada? Yeah, the original phrase there means, or the original word, means to know. As a matter of fact, it's a word used in the Bible, not just for social intimacy, but for sexual intimacy. It's the kind of intimacy that brings two people together, and nine months later, another person arrives. Marvel of marvels. These two people got together, and yada, 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 nine months later, we got a baby. I know you guys are uncomfortable with this, but that's fine, because I was uncomfortable studying it, so you're going to be uncomfortable hearing it. You know, the Seinfeld episode in 1997 kind of made this infamous. Yiddish people, Hebrew people, Jewish people have been using the phrase forever. And so a Jewish boy who's a comedian who's got his own show on TV kind of makes fun of the whole yada, 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 brings up, and now all of us, even Gentiles, are using the phrase yada, yada, yada. Sometimes we mean it to talk, to kind of brush over a sexual encounter, but many times we just use it to avoid giving incriminating details of a situation, I stopped at the stop sign, and then yada, 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 somehow I T-boned somebody. I don't know what happened. I was stopped at the stop sign. I don't know how those next events occurred, right? Because it's incriminating. We also use it when we want to cut parts out of a story and just get to the punchline, like, because we use the word in that way. Well, you know, you know, you know, this happened, this happened, this happened. But let me get to the punchline, right? And so we use it that way. But what does yada really mean? What does the Hebrew word to know actually mean? In the Old Testament, it's used in predominantly three different ways. There's many different meanings, but predominantly three different ways. And the first one is sharing love. It means for a man and a woman to come together. And often in the Scripture, especially in the King James Version, was to know one another. And then, like I said, nine months later, a baby shows up. You know, yada, yada, yada. These things happen. So it means to engage a person in such a way You engage them with love and affection that other lives are transformed or changed by that. You know, we even talk about yada, yada, yada with our premarital couples. Our premarital couples get a set of books to read. And one of the books that they're given right before their wedding ceremony is a little book called Celebration of Sex for Newlyweds. And we give it to them. Do not, if you get that book, although it looks really cute, it's got a nice cover, it looks like it could be a coffee table book. It's got a nice cover to it. Don't put it on the coffee table. There are diagrams in the book. And the diagrams are intended for a young couple who are on their honeymoon to sit and have a dialogue, to talk about what they like and what they don't like, what feels honorable, what doesn't feel honorable. And then yada, 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 they go on their honeymoon, and we're helping them get ready for that. I just gave my son the book not too long ago. It was a very armpit sweaty time for me. Because he's getting married on June 16th. And I told him, this is your assignment. Have devotions with Karen every morning and honor her and love her and learn how to love her and Karen, you learn how to love him. It's kind of weird to be doing the premarital counseling with your son when he's getting married, but someone's got to do it. And so sometimes yada does mean that type of connection, that deep soul connection a man and a woman who are in committed love know and thus a family is born out of that yada also means to show mercy to show mercy another occurrence of it is in the hebrew wisdom books of the old testament like proverbs and other books yada is used to mean the understanding of the needs of people around me and then taking care of those needs So it's used to know. Someone who knows, who has the yada, the knowledge of God about the needs around them will then take care of those needs. It's used of God. God, when he knows, God acts on what he knows to do. Okay? So sometimes yada means just to show mercy and do acts of mercy and kindness because you know what is happening with somebody. Yada also means to act justly means to act justly on behalf of somebody else. It's really showing God's character. Most of the time in the prophetic writings of the Old Testament scriptures, they use this incredible word yada to mean that human beings should be able to understand God and know him in such a way that they reflect his character to this world. And they act on behalf of God. They're his agents. And so often in the prophetic books, kings would be told you should know better you should know how to treat the people you should know god and his character by now and you should live differently and you should reflect his character not yours to this world and by doing so you live out a covenant relationship with god that reflects his character to this world so it's no wonder that jewish people because predominantly yada is used three different ways in the old testament would say what Yada, 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 right? They probably knew instinctively and early on that there were three different meanings for yada, 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 okay? And you were supposed to live out all three of them as you went throughout this world. Yada is dedicating ourselves to a person for love and affection, to build a family and a heritage. Yada is understanding the needs of those around us and taking care of them. And yada is reflecting God's character by faithfully living out a covenant relationship with him in every area of our life. And so, when we are known by God and when we know him, what does it do? It transforms us. The knowing of God should never be over here being the casual Christian that says, yeah, I know about God, but I don't know God. Knowing God should always be upfront and personal. It should be messy but transformational. It should be knowing the scriptures but then applying them. What's it say in Scripture? Blessed is he who not only knows these things, but he who what? Does them, lives them out as they're following Jesus Christ. And so yada means to know God and to open yourself up to be known by God. In verse five of uh, Psalm 139, it goes on to say this, you go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head such knowledge is too wonderful for me i can't take it in lord you put your hand of blessing on my head the god of the universe reaches down out of the skies and touches me you know touching someone in the head is kind of a something that's reserved for very much a caring time isn't it you know you think about it how many times do you really touch somebody else that you know on the head. It's reserved for caring times. I can think of when caregivers are in the hospital, nurses and and, and different practitioners, and when they're moving someone, they might grip the sides of their head and just help them move that body over a little bit. They don't just grab them by the legs and throw them around. They care about that person. It's a very intimate time of care and caregiving and love to move that person and to help their head stay stable. You see when someone gets hurt and an athletic event, and often they'll put them on a, a backboard, and then what do they do? they keep their head straight, and you'll see the EMTs down there cupping the sides of the heads, lifting them up. They're very careful. It's a very careful time, it's a very loving time. It's a very intimate time. It's a very, very uh, strategic time. And so when it says, "God, you have put your hand upon me," it's a very loving, it's a very caring, it's a very intimate moment. You know, at times when the elders are called upon to anoint and pray for someone in our church family. We go to them, and in accordance with James chapter 5, we take a little container of oil with us. We ask for people in their small group and in their family, because James chapter 5 is very, very clear that anointing with oil and prayers of faith for people to be healed should be offered in community because it says this in James 5. It says, when we come together and we confess our sin to each other, then we are healed. It's always in community. And so as elders, we don't come and try to make community happen, We try to say, where are you involved in community? And we will come as the elders and we will interject ourselves into that community and even submit ourselves to that community and bring the authority of the elders there and the opportunity and responsibility of the elders to anoint and pray for people. And so we'll take the little uh, lid off the jar. And if you keep this in your pocket, it's got to be pretty tight. I've had a couple of these leak out and you don't get this stuff out of your clothing. And so what we'll do is we'll uh, just, uh, usually if I'm in charge of the anointing, I will do this and I will put the oil on there and I would say, if your name let's say your name was Kathy. And I would say, Kathy, I anoint you now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And as I did that, I'll put the sign of the cross on your forehead in the oil. I'll say, I anoint you in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. Through this time of prayer, may God minister to you may he heal you. And then I'll usually ask, could I let my hand rest upon your head? as we pray for you. And others will gather around and they'll put their hands on their shoulders and the back and I will put my hand on their head. And every time I do that and I'm part of that, it just uh, there's all kinds of things that flash through my mind. The biggest thing that flashes through my mind and my heart is this is a very intimate time between this person and God. I think of the scripture where it says God is the lifter of our head. And usually while everyone else is praying out loud, I'm praying inside of myself Lord, lift their head up. They are burdened by this illness. They are burdened by this emotional weight. They are weighted down. They're looking down today, God. And they need you to cup their face, to lift up their head, to see God, to see you. They were made to know you and be known by you. Lift up their head. Cup their face. Have a face-to-face, eye-to-eye encounter. You know, we do this a lot with children. What, we touch their head, especially with little boys. For some reason, for me, little kids, I just kind of rough up their hair a little bit. I don't mean it to be mean or rude. As a matter of fact, it's usually a sign that I love you and I care about you, I noticed you. There was a little boy sitting in our office just the other day and he was waiting for his dad to come out of a meeting and he was sitting there by himself and I, I know him and he was sitting there playing with his device, whatever device it was, I don't know if it was a phone or a... I don't know the name, uh, I mean, Game Boys are probably antiquated right now, right? <laughs> Game Boy, that guy's from the dark ages. <laughs> Anyhow, he was playing on a device, I walked by, I said his name, we started to have a conversation. He's conversing with me, but his head is down. He's doing this, and he's articulating all his thoughts and stuff to me, and he and I are the only ones in there. I walk in and get my mail. I'm kind of yelling back out of the mail room to him. You know, We're kind of joking around. We know each other. He's got a funny sense of humor for a young kid. And, uh, and, and I know that he and his dad and his family are going through kind of a rough time right now. And uh, so I came back out, and, and, and I just kind of put my hand on his head, and I didn't even think about it. I just did it. I put my hand on his head and kind of just... You know, got his attention. He looked up at me. I said, How are you doing today, really? Because I know he's going through a difficult time as a little youngster. Hard time, you know, sorting out all this stuff that's going on in his life with his family. And he said, I'll be doing okay. I'm learning how to pray. That was a sacred moment. Not only did when I touched his head and lifted him up, he lifted me up. I got back to my office and I thought, God's teaching me how to pray too. There's difficulties in my life where my head has been down. And God is reaching down through that little boy today. And he's cupping my face. And he's lifting me up. And he's saying, pray some audacious prayers of faith. For yourself, for your church, for your children, for your wife, for your community. But I can't do that unless I let God, what, lift me up. Get my face out of my doldrums. You know, life, life for all of us, it, it's no rose garden, right? Things are going bad. Things sometimes seem like they're going from bad to worse, but if we keep our head down all the time, we just get stuck in the moment, and we need God to lift us up. Maybe today, your step of intimacy, your step of followership is as simple as letting God reach down and lift up your head and your face today, and for him to interject some healing and hope some of him into your life that you would know him and that he would know you let God come into your life today as we talk about this second point and kind of go from it I just ask you today if during one of the songs or the scriptures or even during this time if you need to just stop and let God be the glory and the lifter of your head let him lift you up today embracing intimacy with Jesus means number two Responding to his presence at the table. Responding to his presence at the table. I'm going to read for you in just a moment the story of two unique people who were dinner dinner partners at a dinner during the time of Jesus. There were two people that you normally wouldn't see at a dinner together. One was a very prominent man in the community. You would see him there. And it was normal for him to be hosting the dinner, for him to be having people in. And so he had invited Jesus to come to his home and have dinner. But this other lady that was involved in the dinner was a lady of the night. She lived in the red light district of Palestine. And she made her money by yada, 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 all right? She was someone who knew both real intimacy or at least longed for it, but knew what false intimacy was. And she had an appetite now for real intimacy with God. She'd heard Jesus speak and she'd stayed on the periphery but she couldn't stay there anymore. It's interesting that she of all places would know where this dignified religious person's house was. It begs the question how did she know where his home was? If you know what I mean. I don't think he was always involved in the most dignified of relationships either if she knew where his house was. You get my drift on that one? And so his name is Simon, and he invites Jesus to his house. Listen to what transpires as these two dinner partners are sharing dinner with Jesus that night. It says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home, and he sat down to eat. And when a certain immoral woman, look, she's not even given a name, a certain immoral woman from the city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. She kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Then the Pharisees who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman that is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to another. But neither neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom the larger debt was canceled. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman, but he said to Simon, look at this woman who's kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust off of my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the first time that I came in, she can't stop kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of oil, olive oil, to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. And I tell you, her sins, as many as they are, they have been forgiven. So she has been shown much love. But a person who is forgiven a little shows only a little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that goes around forgiving sins? And then Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In order for us to understand what's going on here, we have to understand some of the expectations that would take place in Palestine at that time when a dinner guest was invited to someone's home. In this story, however, we can see that there's no doubt in anybody's mind that some of these crucial things were not attended to when Jesus was invited for dinner. We don't know if they were extended to the rest of the dinner guests and that he was exempted from them, but we know that Simon was way out of line by not offering to Jesus water for his feet to be cleansed. And usually a servant would do that for you. And Simon was a wealthy man. He would have been a leader. He would have had a servant in his house well-equipped, well-paid, well-prepared to wash the feet of everyone, including Jesus. He not only did not provide the water for his feet to be washed, when Jesus or anybody would have come as the dinner guest, they would have been kissed either on the face or if they were a dignitary, they would have been kissed on the hand to show honor to them. A holy kiss given, exchanged. It says in the scriptures what? Greet one another with what? A holy kiss. That was a Jewish a Jewish tradition and a way of showing love and honor and respect to someone that you would invite into your home. The third thing that they would do is after they were cleansed and, and they were welcomed, they would give them some olive oil because in that place in Palestine to this day, it's an arid, hot, dry place where you get a sunburn and where your skin starts to peel off. So after you were washed up, it was nice to take some hand lotion, as it were, some olive oil, and put it on your hands and then rub it on your face so that you looked cleansed and presentable, so that when you didn't sit at a table, they didn't sit in chairs like this at a table, right? They reclined on the floor on pillows. So if your feet were stinky and dirty, if your hands were not cleaned and your face wasn't, and your countenance looked like you were sunburnt, you looked like the odd man out at the table. And I submit to you that Simon intentionally did this to show disregard to Jesus at the table. It would have been a blatant disregard. And I say that because Jesus points it out to him a little bit later on. He says to him, you didn't offer me water to wash with. You didn't greet me with a kiss. And you didn't give me any oil. Jesus says, I'm on to you. I know what you're about. You know all the scriptures. You've been a part of the special interest group. You've had a rabbi to follow. You've been given the blessing. May the dust of the rabbi cover you. But you are far from me and you are far from God. You have the Torah memorized. You know the scriptures. You know what yada means deep within your soul. But you don't act like it. You are pompous. And you think you know it all, Simon. And you are not. This woman, this woman who you won't even say her name, has been forgiven much and she knows more about following God than you'll ever know, unless you repent of your arrogance. That's what he was saying. It's loud and clear. The nameless lady who worked the streets and did yada, yada, yada knew more about following the master because she was set in the right direction. She was covered in the dust of her rabbi, and she wasn't afraid to draw close. She does the three things that Simon was supposed to do. She comes in and she's so profusely crying that a puddle forms at his feet, on his feet. And so she doesn't know what to do with herself because she doesn't have a towel. Simon hasn't provided a towel. She's kind of cowering and hiding behind Jesus, hoping maybe he'll be the protector that she thought he would be. She barges in, you know, uninvited to the, to the uh, table, seemingly. And so she takes the only thing she has left. And uh, this would have been a show of disregard publicly in some way because it was a show of intimately, privately, was for a woman to let her hair down in front of a man. That was saying, I want to be intimate with you. She had let her hair down in front of quite a few men for the price of a few dollars to keep her family and her life going. She knew what false intimacy was, and she longed for real intimacy. And so not only did she let her hair down, she used it to bathe and dry off, the tears in the crusty mud of Palestine off of the feet of the master. She then took an alabaster jar. And uh, usually she would have been wearing this perfume around her neck. And when she was with a man, she would open it up to let some of that perfume flow. It was part of the payment for the sexual intimacy that a man would pay for with her. He didn't want her to be stinking and her to stink during that time. And so they put some perfume on, right? She doesn't just open that up. According to the scriptures, she traced her footprints back home and came with the source, the source of the perfume, and brought it all to Jesus. She brought everything that she had to Christ that day. She brought the good, the bad, the ugly. The things that had been involved in false intimacy, she now brought to him, thinking somehow he can redeem them, he can use them, he can have them. And so then she takes, because he was given no olive oil, and she anoints him. She anoints his feet. And Jesus commends her. He says, she's not just a fan, she's a follower. And her sin is forgiven because she's choosing the right position. And a position is to come and to follow me. says she brought this beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And she lavishes it on him. She brought what she had to the table and that's all that God asks you to do today. He doesn't ask you to know it all. He doesn't ask you to know all the scriptures. He doesn't ask you to memorize things. He doesn't ask you to put a Christian fish on the back of your car. He doesn't ask you not to watch R-rated movies. He doesn't ask you to follow all the rules and regulations that we've come up in the mirror for Christianity. He asks you to turn and to follow him and give him everything that you've had, that you've invested in intimacy, into false idols and false places, and put it at his feet. That's what he asks. Will you bring it all to me? Simon had said to himself, if this man were a prophet, He would have known what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. And Jesus told him, I know who she is. And by the way, I know who you are. And you need to come follow me too. Because all of your knowledge is keeping you at a distance. The truth is, fans love knowledge. Followers embrace intimacy and embrace the master. And all knowledge that we have of God should breed our intimacy and not keep us at a distance, but far too often it does. We become knowledgeable. the church in America were some of the most judgmental people in the world. I know that because I can be very judgmental of other people. They just pull it together, they just pull their lives together and get things straightened out. if those people would just those what those unnamed people. People who at times in my judgmental nature and in yours too, we don't even assign a name to them. But God tells us they're not an it, they're a thou. And they need to be treated with respect and honor because they were wired to know God and be known by him too. And so it's not only her that needs saved that day. Simon is in deep need of salvation and repentance. With tongue in cheek, Jesus says, oh, yes, Simon, Uh, you don't have to be forgiven much. He knows that's not true. He knows that the the pride and the arrogance of Simon is just as big a sin as her promiscuity. He knows it. And Simon now knows it. But will he repent? In the book, Not a Fan, Kyle Eidelman kind of sums up this whole interaction, this awkward dinner party this way. In the end, the religious leader with all the knowledge is the fan and the prostitute who intimately expressed her love for Jesus is shown to be the follower. Here then is the question that you and I have to ask ourselves, who am I most like in the story? When is the last time that I had a moment with Jesus when I felt like the woman in Luke 7? When's the last time I poured myself out on him? When is the last time that the tears streamed down my face as I expressed my love for him? When is the last time I demonstrated my love for him with reckless abandon, like the woman in Luke chapter 7? Our question today is how will we respond to Jesus? Because today we're sitting at a table with him. Today and every day, we have the chance, we have the opportunity. God prepares a table before us. His presence is everywhere. Christ's presence is in us and on us and through us and around us. And we have to decide, will we welcome him at the table? Will we get to know him? Will we draw close to him or will we stand at a distance? Just enough knowledge in our head to keep Jesus far from our heart. What will we do? A few weeks ago, I was uh, pleasingly surprised when I went to a lunch meeting with a group of pastors. This group of pastors is working together to help plant a new church in the heart of Harrisburg, in Allison Hill. If you know anything about Allison Hill right now, you know that not only is Harrisburg in a rough spot, Allison Hill is probably one of the most volatile places on the map in south-central Pennsylvania. Okay? So we're working together, and two of the uh, church planters who really have their boots on the ground Their first language is Spanish because they were raised in Ecuador. One is named Paul and one is named Javier. I love that name, Javier. Isn't that a great name? Pastor Javier. Sounds, you know, I don't know, something good about it. These two men are very humble, but they're very diligent in their work. And so we were meeting with them right over near Allison Hill to have a lunch meeting and to to go to a restaurant that they had taken us to. When I walked in, I couldn't help but to know they knew the restaurant owner. They knew everyone who was there. They had laid tracks for us to be there, and they knew everybody around. Everyone in that place knew those two pastors, and we were welcome there because they were welcome there. They helped us order the food because we didn't know what those names, we didn't know what the Spanish names in the food was. We didn't know what we were eating, but it smelled awfully good. And so Paul helped me order mine, and John was with us. I think Javier helped John order his food as uh, melody's husband john serves on the committee too in the task force we sat down and we were going to get ready to eat and of course they insisted that we pray first and that we pray for the whole you know team and everything that was going on not just for the food and so we started these popcorn prayers with five or six different pastors and you wonder how cold's my food going to be when we're done with this couldn't we have prayed that before we ordered these guys are pastors we're going to be here forever that's what's running through my mind. So I conjure up some prayer inside of me, and I don't even remember what I said. And right after me, on the heels of that, a few prayers later, Javier chimes in. And Javier, in his eloquent, and he chooses to pray in English, not in Spanish for us. And he's got this just beautiful, beautiful accent, you know, and he's a humble man. And he starts his prayer, and the words of his prayer was this, started with this, and after this, I lost it. Jesus, we give you the honored seat at the table today. Jesus, we give you the honored seat at the table today. As we sat there in one of the most devastated parts of Harrisburg, and I'm looking around, is there going to be a gunshot soon? Maybe. know what he's doing? Welcoming Jesus. The table of his life and our lives. into one of the rockiest places around. I submit to you today, he had it right on. I submit to you today that each day of our life, we need to wake up in the morning and say, Jesus, you're the honored guest at the table of my life today. There are many people I'm going to meet, many people I'm going to eat with, many people I'm going to interact with. You are the honored guest. I wash your feet. I kiss you. I embrace you. I anoint you to be the one that I follow today. I'm not just your fan. I'm your follower. You are the welcome guest today. You know, in conclusion, I wonder something about this lady you know, her expression of love on the day that she came to Christ and her day of salvation was very, very over the top, wasn't it? And she washes his feet, she's doing all this stuff. Even when I read it, I'm like, whoa, someone slow that chick down. She's kind of out of control, right? She wasn't even invited to be there. And I wonder if maybe a year or two later that some of her passion maybe started to die off for Jesus. I wonder if she started to act more like Simon, than the lady she was that day, and the only reason I wonder that is because the same thing happened to me, and the same thing happens to you. We come to Jesus, and in that time we are stoked, we're excited, we're telling everybody about the Lord. I remember when I first came to Jesus, circling around at a drive-up at a McDonald's to give back the quarter that was overpaid to me, and the guy next to me in the seat saying, "You are a freak." I said it's not my quarter. Because he knew me months earlier when I would not only have pocketed that quarter, I would have pocketed every red cent I could have gotten in any way I could have. But Jesus came in and some things were changing. But you know, the years progress and we start to move back and sometimes what? We're headed in the wrong direction, aren't we? We do something that we call in the church backsliding. And we become a Christian with a fish in the car who doesn't watch R-rated videos, but we're far from God. We're headed in the wrong direction. We're covered in someone else's dust. And we're not moving closer to the master. The good news is there's salvation for us too. There's forgiveness for us too. Simon had the opportunity to turn back and begin to follow. And Jesus offers us that same opportunity today. He says, Choose intimacy, don't be a fan. Don't be a fan who just wants knowledge, but choose intimacy with me. And in the next moments, as I pray the end of Psalm 139 for you, I would suggest that you pray the end of Psalm 139 for yourself. Let God lift up your head. Let him challenge you. Get your posture in the right direction. Get the dust of the master all over you in the next week as you follow him and draw close to his heart as he leads you by his Holy Spirit. Let's talk to God together in prayer. Lord, your word says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. So we say, thank you for designing us to know and be known by you. We long for that. Set us in the right direction. Your word says, point out anything in me that offends you. Lord, we say know us and show us the attitudes and actions that keep us stuck in the stands, acting like fans when you designed us to be followers. Lord, your word says, lead me along the path of everlasting life. And so we pray, Jesus, empower us to develop and also engage in a life-changing journey with you to celebrate your grace, to connect with your family, to contribute to your work as we follow you, headed in the right direction, covered in your dust, getting ever closer to the Master. In Jesus' name, amen. He's not mad. You and He's not disappointed.